You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Changes um, that really come forefront to America is documented by Martin Marty, a well-known sociologist. Uh, Professor Marty observes that changing one's religion is easy in America. And it's without an enormous amount of social controversy or complexity that a person wakes up one morning and decides that they want to be of a different faith. And in the last 20 years, and maybe even the last 40 years, the social consequences of conversion have diminished. Um, you're not going to be fired from your job. They're not going to burn crosses or mug and dovids on your front yard. Um, they're not going to exclude you from your community. Um, and converts are profoundly integrated um, and welcomed into a variety of communities. People change their religion when they want to. The era where uh, converts were murdered is long over, but the era where converts were stigmatized and where conversion was difficult and complicated and your parents stopped talking to you and your neighbors shunned you and your employer fired you is over as well. And on a social level, very few people face dire consequences and many people, no consequences at all um, in the course of conversion. And this has allowed many more people to search for their true faith. And realizing that idea is itself sort of very interesting and important. We are living in an era in which people become more or less religious as they wish. Um, people become of a different religion when they wish. And um, there's um, no enormous pressure either by the government or even by your neighbors and community not to do this. Maybe there's some pressure in Borough Park and maybe there's some pressure in Ava Maria Village in Florida. But in general, in the United States, almost all of us make religious choices grounded in what we perceive to be our own best interests with little pressure. This is part of the Balchuva revolution in our community. It's increased the number of people who have joined our community. And by the way, it's increased the number of people who have left our community. We don't really talk about this. Um, but of course, um, there is both an entry and an exit rate into the community. A well-known Israeli sociologist noted once that <clears throat> there are dozens of books written about why people become religious, but only one or two about why people stop, even though the number of people who have left orthodoxy is quite great. And the same thing is true. We like to discuss conversion into our community, 
we rarely discuss leaving our community to join another faith, even though there are many and quite prominent people in the last 20 years who have left Judaism and another faith. Perhaps the most prominent of them is Jay Sokolow, President Trump's attorney, who is a product of the Jewish day school system and is now an evangelical Christian. <laughs> this idea, which is people join our community and people leave our community as they see fit with little social pressure and little stigma, um, it is quite an important change in the United States. And it represents a reinvigoration of conversations not about how to convert to Judaism, but about how to deal with converts who have already converted. What I like to call Hilchot Gerim. Okay. And Hilchot Gerim, rather than Hilchot Gerut is how to become a convert. And it deals with Mila, Tvila, Kabbalat, Mitzvot, and all the other criteria for becoming Jewish. The baked in so many details about the process and procedure. But Hilchot Gerim essentially deals with a different question. It deals with the question of how do we want to interact with converts in their in our community, they themselves, their children, the, um, how do we want to deal with them as they further and more integrate into our um, community? And I want to note that on a social level, um, there's an aspect here of two different kinds of converts. There are some converts who wish to fade into the background and not interact with people as converts. And there are other people who wear their conversion on their sleeve and they want to be interacted with as a convert. The, the Medrash sort of hints at this. The Gemara, the Medrash recounts that uh, HaKadosh Baruch Hu interacts with converts in a special way. And the Medrash gives an analogy of a flock of sheep that has a deer hanging out with the sheep. And the king comes around every day and sees the deer hanging out with the sheep and takes special interest in the deer. And the shepherds say, why do you have special interest in the deer? And the shepherd, the king says, because the deer is choosing to join us. And that's an especially lovely activity. This metaphor highlights the following reality, which is sometimes, and in some places, converts never fully integrate. And they sort of stick out like a deer hanging out with a flock of sheep. And we need to pay special close attention to the deer that's hanging out with the flock of sheep exactly because we worry very much that the nail that sticks out is most likely to get hammered. And we want to take great steps to make sure that the convert doesn't stick out and is not hammered because of this. Um, you can think about this in the construct of loving the convert, 
And the idea that the Torah specifically and directly stops us to remind us countless, numerous times of the mitzvah to love the convert, but to some extent, merely focusing on the mitzvah to love the convert isn't always helpful because to some extent, the core of the question is, so how do I love the convert? And we'll see as we continue through in this year, and maybe even in this conversation, that sometimes I love the convert by ignoring the fact that they're a convert. And sometimes I love the convert by specifically highlighting the fact that they're a convert and they're entitled to special treatment. And I want to note that lurking underneath this is a central disagreement between the Rambam and the Gaonim who came before the Rambam. The Rambam really changed the way we understand the Halacha. If you look closely in the Gaonim, the Gaonim tended to de-emphasize the mitzvah of Avas Ager. The Gaonim said the central mitzvah is Kager Ka'ezrach. Every Jew is treated identically. And the way I manifest my love of the Ger is by treating the Ger like everybody else. There's no special mitzvah to love the Ger. Because almost by definition, if I special mitzvah to love the ger, the first step in fulfilling the special mitzvah of loving the ger is highlighting the fact that they're converts. And if I highlight the fact that they're converts, I've definitionally violated the idea that the Torah mentions, kager ka'ezrach, that I should treat the convert no differently than everybody else. Um, the Rambam does not understand the mitzvah this way, and almost all the Rishonim following the Rambam adopt the Rambam's view. They think that a convert is entitled to special treatment. Precisely because the convert is entitled to special treatment, how can I treat you special other than by identifying who you are for special treatment? If you want to think about it, the Rambam almost imagines an affirmative action program for converts. The first step in treating people differently is identifying them as special treatment, people worthy of special treatment. If I can't identify you as people worthy of special treatment, then how can I possibly treat you differently? The problem, of course, is, is that treating people differently is frequently exactly not what the convert wants. Frequently, what the convert really wants is integration into the community and denial of their conversion. This is particularly so, perhaps, when we recognize that some people convert in under less than perfect circumstances. And as they move away from those imperfect circumstances, they're converting because they're in love or in a relationship, they want to hide that fact or certainly not highlight that fact. 
And to do this requires a different way of thinking about loving the convert than the classical love of the conversion of the convert uh, highlights. And I guess when I talk about this issue, I generally think about it as six cases, four principles, and two rules. That helps me think through categories and situations. There are six categories, four principles, and two rules. And just highlighting this idea is very helpful in thinking about how we go about talking about Hilchos Geirim, how to interact with a convert. One category of cases is there are certain situations where the halacha is simply uniquely different for a convert than for a born Jew. The convert's relationship with their family of origin is simply totally different than a born Jew's relationship with their Jewish family. Although, of course, a convert has a hakara satov obligation towards their righteous non-Jewish family. And this is even more so true, I've noticed in America, where the fears Chazal had, which is the non-Jews family, would oppose the conversion, um, it's important to recognize that frequently in the United States, countless times the non-Jews family calls up the rabbi who's doing the conversion, and you know what the non-Jews family says? I am so happy that my child has found Judaism. They grew up in my own faith, and they were never comfortable in their own faith. And I'm so happy that they found a new faith that they're comfortable in. And then the, non, the convert's parents turn to me and they say, how can I help? What can I do to make my child's entry into Judaism better? and more lively. Can you, Rabbi Broid, please talk to me about what I should do as a convert's parents to be helpful? Should I disappear more? Should I appear more? Is it helpful for my children when they get married and I come to the wedding that I do wear a kippah? Would it be better if I did not show up? Would it be better if I pretended I was Jewish? I'm not but I'm happy to pretend because I love my children. The convert's relationship with their family of origin is exceedingly complicated because sometimes it's a tense relationship, as Rabbi Feinstein notes. Sometimes it's parametered by our desire that the convert should not grow too close with their family of origin lest they feel drawn back to their old faith but it's also parametered by a deep hakarasatov that your parents, even though they are not Jewish, they positioned you. And let me add, in the 21st century, in America particularly, it's parametered frequently by the fact that the convert's parents 
are instrumental in helping the conversion. I've had parents of converts call me up and say, can I send you money, Rabbi Broy, to help my children along in their conversion? Maybe they need lessons. Can you use this money to pay for the lessons? There's a unique obligation a convert has of Hakara Satov to their non-Jewish parents, which is, I recognize, tempered by the halachic idea that if you grow too close to your non-Jewish parents, Shema Choser Vesuro, maybe the convert will be tempted to return. And the convert's relationship with their parents of origin is a unique relationship that doesn't have paradigms in the mitzvah of kibud aveim. Um, must such a child mourn for their parents? May they mourn for their parents? How should a convert's parents interact with the Jewish community? How should the rules of inheritance interact? There are unique rules relating to the relationship between a convert and their parents that does not follow the paradigm of a Jew and their parents. The second issue is, is the second idea is the unique obligation to love a convert. As we've discussed before, there's a special obligation to love the convert. But as Again, Rav Moshe points out, sometimes the obligation to love the convert is to put your thumb on the scales against discriminating against the convert. Rav Moshe writes in his famous tshuva about can a ger be a Rosh Yeshiva? He says the mitzvah of avas ager puts its thumb on the scales in favor of integrating the convert into the community. Nobody really likes being discriminated against. And the mitzvah of Ava Sager encourages us to further integrate the convert into the community. Sometimes it obligates us to love the convert even more, recognizing their special circumstance. When I only have one seat left at my Seder, I should reach mightily out to the convert out of fear that the convert has no place to go because Pesach is a family time and the convert doesn't necessarily have family. But sometimes the mitzvah of Avas Ager encourages me to ignore the fact that they're a convert and not discriminate in favor of them or against them but treat them on the merits. This is an important idea. When I only have one seat left at my Pesach Seder, I do want to reach out to the convert because I'm worried that the convert doesn't have family to go to. On the other hand, when I have an excellent candidate to be Rosh Yeshiva and they're a convert, I don't want to say, oh, I discriminate against converts as a Rosh Yeshiva. Converts in that situation, are loved best by not loving them as converts. And then, of course, there are what I call transition issues involving a convert. A convert is 
a very unique situation. Yesterday I was a non-Jew, and today I'm Jewish. At first glance, we don't think about these issues, but there are so many fascinating issues. My involvement in Hilchos Gerim started with a simple Shiloh, a convert asked me, right after they converted, they converted at 10 o'clock in the afternoon, and they said to me, Rabbi Broid, I've converted. I have leftover eggs that I cooked for breakfast before my conversion. I know from learning with you that eggs are governed by Bishalaku. Can I go home and eat the eggs that I cooked? Or are they prohibited to me because of Bishalaku? It's fascinating, Shiloh, because who's the Akum who cooked the eggs? This Jew. This Jew cooked the eggs. Maybe there's a set of transition issues that don't apply. Even though at the moment these eggs were cooked, they're governed by the rules of Bishal Akum. When the Akum converts to Judaism, the prohibition disappears. I wrote this up in an article published in Chakira in the context of whether a convert who converts to Judaism needs to immerse his utensils. It's such a fascinating view. The Avne Nezer makes the following claim. When a non-Jew converts to Judaism, his utensils mythically, magically, and mystically convert with him. What does this mean? This means that it's as if they immersed in a mikvah. It's as if they immersed in a mikvah. Now, of course, they didn't immerse. At the time that he immersed to become Jewish, he didn't immerse with all of his pots and pans. But the pots and pans transitioned from pots and pans of a non-Jew needing immersion to pots and pans of a Jew that don't need immersion by dint of the fact that he converted. Achronim, a group of Achronim expressed some reticence about this. But when I'm asked to defend it, I give the following example we think about. Imagine... A person is converting to Judaism. And sadly enough, as they convert, before they convert to Judaism, they're in a terrible accident and they lose their left hand. Okay? Um, They convert to Judaism as an amputee. Um, Is the left hand um, that was amputated from them, does it have the status of the limb of a Jew? or the limb of a Gentile. I would say when they die, this Jew buries their limb with them and it has the status of the limb of a Jew because this limb magically, mythically, mystically converted to Judaism when the body that it was supposed to be attached to converted to Judaism. I know that not all halachic authorities accept this view, 
But in the last many years, more and more halachic authorities have been inclined to say that when a non-Jew converts to Judaism, their utensils no longer need immersion. This is from Ravovaji Yosef onward, even though I'm aware of the fact that the Shevet Halevi doesn't say this. I, Rabbi Usher Weiss says this, and more and more people say this. And there are many other transition issues. Consider a non-Jew who converts in the middle of Sphiris Omer. Do they count with a bracha? Does it matter if they counted with a bracha when they were non-Jewish? Or is it because now they were mitzvah, and since they were mitzvah, they convert? A non-Jew is lighting Hanukkah candles on the first day as a non-Jew, as a second day as a non-Jew. In the middle of the second day, they convert to Judaism. How many candles do they light? Well, that seems easy. They light three. Do they make a Shechianu on the third night of Hanukkah since it's their first time lighting Hanukkah candles as a Jew? Or does the Shechianu that they said as a non-Jew satisfy the mitzvah? Or they convert on Cholomoid Sukkot and they sit in the sukkah for the first time as a Jew. Um, does, do they make a Shechianu that first time? There are a whole set of transition issues. Everybody converts in the middle of something. As a general proposition, we're inclined to say conceptually that that which you did as a non-Jew doesn't count towards the fulfillment of mitzvot. So when a non-Jew converts at eight in the morning, I customarily tell the non-Jew right after their conversion, Davin Shachris. And you know what the non-Jew says? I davened already. Indeed, they say, Rabbi Broid, I davened with you in the minion this morning. Nonetheless, I smile nicely and I say, daven again. Maybe the Shachris that you davened as a non-Jew doesn't fulfill your obligations as a Jew. And now you're obligated in Shachris and you should daven again. Um, <clears throat> some of these issues are, I say, quite beguiling because everybody converts at some level in the middle of certain mitzvot that are ongoing. Sometimes we're inclined to think that they should do the mitzvah again, and sometimes we're inclined to think that the fulfillment of the mitzvah as a non-Jew suffices. The classic example being the mitzvah of Pru or Ravu, which is a non-Jew who has children when they're not Jewish, we generally say those children fulfill their obligations as a non-Jew since they actually practically children in this world. But transition mitzvot are simultaneously beguiling and transitory. So we're hopeful with the passage of time, uh, these don't exist. But as a general proposition, I'm inclined to think that mitzvot that are being Yisrael Amin, that distinguish between Jew and Gentile, they don't fully apply um, to a person who subsequently converts to Judaism. So I think when a non-Jew 
<laughs> scrambles eggs in the morning, converts to Judaism in the afternoon, those eggs are not governed by Bishalakum anymore. Um, and you can eat those eggs as a convert to Judaism, even though before you converted to Judaism, they were governed by Bishalakum. This another example. Rabbi Broid, so you're saying, sorry for interrupting uh, your flow. I'm not flow. interrupting, you're asking questions. Yes, I understand. <laughs> Thank you for correcting that. Uh, so it's, it's Lechaira, from where I'm uh, thinking about it, for the person himself, it seems to be poshit that he's not going to be um, influenced by this because he is the person. The whole idea of Bishol Nochri is that it could be Moshech you towards that other person. If that other person is yourself, and you are clearly not that, so, but you want to be matter his eggs to even another Jew. Right? I think that once one Jew can eat it, um, any Jew can eat it. That's correct. I think yeah. if once one Jew can eat it, any Jew can eat it. I'm, in, I'm inclined to think, putting aside all the culinary issues associated with my eating somebody else's breakfast, um, which sounds like a, a Ben Adam Chavero, not nice thing to do. Um, I think that once one Jew can eat something, it's not governed anymore by Vishal Akum. And I'm not worried, let me add as a matter of logic, by my being brought close to this person, because this person is Jewish. So a woman makes scrambled eggs in the most delicious way and converts to Judaism, and I eat her scrambled eggs after she's converted to Judaism, and I say to myself, oh my gosh, these scrambled eggs are delicious. I should marry the person who made them. The classical Mishum Chas. So it's mutter to marry this person at this moment. They're totally and completely Jewish. I'm inclined to think that for most of these transition issues, if the convert themselves can eat them, then everybody is permitted to eat them as well. Yes, that's correct. Since I'm assuming that even Stam Yayan doesn't have an issue of Avodazara, it only has an issue of Yena Mishum Benosam, the same would be even true for um, their wine. I agree with that. That's exactly what I want to convey. Thank you for clarifying it. Um, converts are have slightly different marriage rules. And because converts have slightly different marriage rules, um, we identify female converts at their conversion in the Ksuva. And we do that because since converts have slightly different marriage rules, they can marry Mamzerim and they cannot marry Kohanim. Um, we take steps to identify converts um, in marriage. I want to note, by the way, that frequently this is not done correctly. And I want to spell this out as a matter of normative halacha. The Shulchan Aruch is clear that when a woman converts before the age of three, um, when she gets married, even though you have to note that she is a convert, um, 
her ksuva is 200 zuz, and there's nothing wrong with using the appellation ksuva, in her ksuva, so long as you know that she's also a ger. Um, her ksuva is clearly 200. She is a besula, and there's no social stigma associated with this. She's not allowed to marry a Kohen, but it's not because she isn't a besula. I present an argument in something that I wrote a while ago that the same might as well be true even for an adult convert who is, in fact, a besula, that you can note in her ksuva besultada and you can note the proper payment is 200 zuz, even though you simultaneously have to note that this woman is, in some level, a giorek. You can say, bat avram avinu, besultada matayim zuz. You can say it all in these situations. It's a frequent mistake in our ksuvas that we don't draw distinctions between um, young converts and older converts and converts whose suva is entitled um, to 200 zuz and not. Um, there's an elaborate conversation in the Gemara and in the Rishonim about how, how and when a convert can hold positions of authority. Um, the Gemara states, and the Rambam codifies the halacha, that a convert cannot hold a position of authority. I'm extremely reticent to apply this in America. The minog in America is, is that a convert can be a rabbi. All yeshivas that I'm aware of give smicha to converts. And I think a rabbi can be a shul rabbi. I think a rabbi can be a rosh yeshiva. I think a rabbi can be the principal of a school or the head of a girl's seminary or any other position of authority. This is exactly what Rav Moshe writes in his tshuva about a convert being a rosh yeshiva. But let me add even more. This is even more so true in the United States where the nature of the rabbinate has changed. How do you become a shul rabbi in America? You get elected by the board. And Rahman al-Islam, how do you stop being a shul rabbi in America? Well, you can do it my way. I resigned because I was tired of being the rabbi of the young Israel of Toko Hills, and I wanted to learn more. But you can also be fired by your shul. It's not a classical inherited position of authority like a melech. It's instead an elected position, and it's not a classical position of sarara. You have no authority at all. Everybody who listens to their shul rabbi chooses to do so of their own free will. It might be that a position like the chief rabbi of Israel, which has legal authority over a community, might be governed by positions of Sarara. I generally don't comment on Torah matters unique to the land of Israel, and I won't here. But in the United States, I perceive no position that a convert can't hold from the president of Yeshiva University to um, the rabbi of any given shul to the, a Rosh Yeshiva position. All of these are positions in which 
Everybody who wants to follow this person chooses to do so. It's not a position of involuntary sarara authority. Even to be a Hasidic Rebbe over your community is voluntary. When you don't want to be a part of a Hasidic community anymore, to quote the words of Simon and Garfunkel, they don't get quoted enough in Torah Shirim, take the bus, Ross, and move to a different community. Um, there's no real positions of authority left that directly place the Talmudic rule as applicable in America. Based on this, Yeshivot freely give smicha to Geirim. I'm inclined to think that a convert can't sit on a Beit Din Legior as a Chumrah, even though I'm not 100% sure that that's the completely correct answer. I do think in contemporary America, converts can sit on Bate Din for commercial matters because everybody who sits on a Beit Din for commercial matters does so because the parties have agreed to accept them. You know, there's a dispute among the Rishonim about other Beitin matters, but we don't really have other Beitin matters. We don't have Batei Din on capital matters. We don't really need a Beitin for um, for convert for um, divorce, and it's clear that a, a convert cannot sit on a Beitin for chalitza matters. I'm inclined to think that it's inappropriate for a convert to sit on a baitin for Gairus matters, and I recognize that that has aspects of being a Chumrah, but it's a good Chumrah to keep since a group of halachic authorities think that it's also for a convert to sit on such, but they didn't. Why be mozi laws on other conversions? And finally, of course, is the dispute between the Rambam and Rabbeinu Tam about whether a convert makes mention of ancestral Judaism. The Rambam is adamant, and we accept the halacha, that a convert, when they daven, is completely allowed to say things like, the God of our forefathers, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And they're allowed to make reference to ancestral Judaism as if they were a natural-born Jew, since the act of conversion magically mis- gives them the authority to claim um, memory in the community. And when you ask me to sort of think about undergirded principles, I give four basic undergirded principles. The first is love. We'll come back to love. Love sometimes inclines us to be lenient in favor of the convert. And love sometimes inclines us to be strict to allow the greater integration of the convert. The second is arevut. There's a recognition of the fact that a convert is in fact governed by kol Yisrael arevim zubazu, and a convert can participate with the community in every aspect of arevus. I know that there's some dispute as to whether that's true, but I think the Psach is clear that an Arev is totally and completely allowed to participate. They can be a Chazan, they can be a Balkore, they can do anything that involves Yatsa Motsi situations. On the other hand, a convert can choose 
which community they want to join. They don't have to join a specific community. They don't even have to join an ancestral community if, for example, their father was a Bubba of Chassid and their mother was not Jewish. They don't have to be a Bubba of Chassid. A convert gets to choose the community that they want to join. They can be Ashkenaz, Svard, Edota Mizrach, Babavar, Lubavitch, anything they want. Um, and they certainly don't have to join the ancestral community that the Jews in their neighborhood would have joined. So a non-Jew who grows up in the Ukraine doesn't have to join the Ashkenazi community. They can join the Sephardi community in Israel, even though as a blonde-haired Ukrainian speaker, there'd be a rarity in Parat Yosef. They're absolutely, totally, and completely entitled to choose. Converts have the right to choose an integrated whole set of minhagim. They can become Yemenite Jews if they want to, even though they were born in the Ukraine. A convert also has the status of a Tino of a dummy. Their relationship with their family is severed when they become newborn and they're integrated into the community as a standalone. And they're allowed to not necessarily have to relate to everybody as if they were their family. But two key factors, of course, are ever present. When a convert integrates into a community, they have to follow the minhagim of that community. So when you integrate into Ashkenaz, you have to follow some overlap of the Aruch and the Mishnaburah. You can't say to yourself, I'm integrating into the Ashkenazi community, but I'm, I'm going to eat kidney oat on Pesach. You have to integrate as a whole into a community. You can't become a non-Jew observing Ashkesvard pick and choose. You get to choose a community but you don't get to choose which of the minhagim in the community. You want to join the Babav community, you can, but then you follow Minagay Babav. You want to join the Yemenite community in Israel, you can, and you can do this even though you speak Ukrainian and are blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and six-foot-four. You'll, you'll look different from most Yemenite Jews, but it doesn't matter. But you can't pick and choose among the community that you join. The first is that a convert has the right to pick and choose, but they don't have the right to partially pick and choose. In that sense, they might be um, no different than the rest of us. We too are allowed to pick and choose. I can become a Satmar Chassid, even though I didn't grow up that way. If I wanted to, a convert has a moment where they're allowed to choose. But the second issue is more important and extremely important. When Rav Moshe is writing his tshuva about a ger as a Rosh Yeshiva, he says something very profound, which is, to me, the second key factor. But as a matter of practice, you need to know 
חייבת אותנו לקרב אותם להקל בכל עניינים אלו. רב משה says the mitzvah of Avas Agar has to incline us to be lenient on all matters that drive the integration of a convert. When a convert asks you a shiloh, or when you are a convert figuring out what to do, or we as a community are building institutions that relate to converts, the mitzvah of Avas Agar drives us to pick and choose among reasonable halachic options that best facilitates the mitzvah of avas ager. When I have two or three or four reasonable halachic options in front of me, I'm allowed to ask which of these reasonable halachic options best fulfills the mitzvah of Avas Agar, and then I must, we are obligated to adopt the view that is manifest the greatest love of the convert by furthering their integration into the Jewish community. Sometimes it drives us to diminish the stigma of conversion, And sometimes it drives us to better integrate the convert by highlighting their unique role as a convert. So in general, you need to recognize that the mitzvah of Avas Ager, which started and which is where we'll stop, plays a crucial role. The mitzvah of Avas Ager obligates us, after a great deal of thought, the mitzvah of Avas Ager obligates us to think really hard about which of the reasonable halachic options we can use that further integrates the convert into the community in a way that is manifest our deep love and admiration of the convert. And this is not a simple matter because sometimes the way you manifest your love of the convert is by affirmative action, by giving the convert a further break that others might not be entitled to and that's the mitzvah of Avas Agar. And sometimes the mitzvah of Avas Agar is manifest by ignoring the fact that they're a convert and heightening their integration into the community by ignoring that fact. There is no single answer or no single idea for how to be manifest Avas Agar, but the idea that but as a matter of practice, you need to go, no, that after a great deal of thought, we've come to realize that the mitzvah of loving the convert creates a model for us in which it's important that we work as hard as we can to integrate the convert into our community. Every aspect of Hilchos Geirim Every aspect of 
the laws governing converts has to be examined through the lens of the mitzvah of loving the convert and integrating the convert into our community to the best of our community while destigmatizing the convert. It might be that one of the grand missions of Jewry in the 21st century is to be manifest of us again in new and novel ways. We're finally living in a time where in the United States, there's no stigma associated with becoming Jewish. And lots of people are reaching out to us to become closer to God and to the Jewish people. We need to be manifest of us again, the love of the convert, by building a community that's meticulously careful in Hilchos Geirin, in the laws governing converts, to further integrate converts into the Jewish community as a form of avas ager, loving the convert. Thank um, So, you know, Rabbi Broid, as, as you know, you've made <laughs> very fine use of Rav Moshe's tshuva about uh, the Rosh Hashiva. Um, I happen to have been... Um, one of I was a rub for a, a while, as you know, in um, in a shul, and that you had a little bit of a connection to. And one of the questions that was, that was asked to me before they accepted me as their rabbi was, "Would I allow a convert to be the president of the shul?" Yes. Uh, one of the reasons why this shul um, sort of broke away from the larger Besaknesis in their area was because they had heard of, they had received the psak in the name of Ramesha. Um, and I think it might is either Rabdovid or Rabruvain that was that was approached about this question about a president of a shul. And uh, I had a discussion which I think I've spoken to you about once with uh, my Rebbe and yours, I know in, in a certain sense as well, Rav Gedalia Dov Schwartz, about this question. Um, so are you aware that there is a Messiah, and we talked about this uh, off off the uh, recording a couple of hours, an hour ago, that Rav Moshe would supposedly held a, a, a convert should not be a president of a shul. Have you heard this? I am uh, very much aware of the Messiah. Rav Moshe did not put it in writing. Um, he did say it to the National Council of Young Israel Many, 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 many years ago, you could. This is one of these cases where, um, precisely because Rav Moshe didn't give us a reason, I could think of many different reasons. It could be that it was a manifestation of um, specific situations and conditions in America in the fifties, where many gayrim, where many gayrims was poorly done, and many converts were converting in bad situations. It could be that it had something to do with the unique construct of the National Council of Young Israel in that situation. It could be that it was because they essentially asked Rav Moshe about whether a woman could be president, and he bundled the two together. Since I have no idea what was on Rav Moshe's mind, and I know that it's inconsistent with the written tshuva about a ger as a rosh yeshiva, I know that a Rosh Yeshiva has much more Sarara than a Shul president. I know that. 
<laughs> I, I don't know how to harmonize the Shmua with the written Tuva, other than by saying the Shmua, which I'm sure is true in the sense that they asked of Moshe, must be in a unique factual situation that's not of general application. Well, you know, as you pointed out that Rav Moshe's interpretation of what Sarora is, this is really what you were saying, was something Rav Moshe, I think you, you wrote this actually explicitly, that Rav Moshe might not have interpreted Sarora the way he did, but as you said, he put his finger on the scale because of the aspect of Avas Hager, right? Right. So, so in other words, it, it, as you said, Rav Moshe's inter- he could have understood uh, objectively that a president of a shul also, in a sense, is given srara as well. Uh, it's just that in that case, where we're talking about denying a Rosh Hashiva, denying a, a Ger Tzedek, the, the, the chance to be a Rebbe and a Malamid and a Rosh Hashiva, Rav Moshe paskins in a way where Avas Hager is noted. So, um, you know, I'll tell you what Rabbi Schwartz said. I don't mind saying it because it was only in his lifetime. He told me not to be Mepharsim at Bishmoy. But Rav Moshe said, Rabbi Schwartz told me that a president is basically a shliach of the board and of the people who vote. So even though they've decided to give him control, it's because they are lazy or it's because they feel it's impractical for them to be making those type of decisions. But really the president is someone who is is sort of an elected official, despite the fact that when he acts as president, he acts with a certain amount of control. But that's how- I I heard this from Rabbi Gedalia Dove Schwartz as well. And let me go further. Rabbi Schwartz added to me that there are almost no shul bylaws that give the president any authority if the board disagrees with him. That Rav Moshe might have been talking, Rabbi Schwartz said, about a shul that has a president, but no board. Mm-hmm. Like a European parnas. Yeah. In America, I, I, when you're the president and the board lacks confidence in you, you have no authority. I would also want to add, I don't know if Ramesha doesn't mention this, I don't think, but we're all familiar with probably the the situation that indicates a Rosh Hashiva as a Balsrover more than any. And that, of course, was in, in, in the way we know about Yavna. And we know over there, the Gemara says, Tov and Avre. When they felt that Rogamliel was out of line, Rogamliel stopped being the Nasi. Tov and Avre. Now, what, what sort of process was involved? Um, you know, Yitzhak Isaac Halevi Rabinovich and Darius Rishonim says, yeah, you see from there, they don't want you. They snap their fingers. The people don't like you. You're gone. So that right. I think is a, is a, even without sticking your finger on the scale, I think you can see from that Gemara and Brochus, uh, that is the case. One other point, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm in a way, I'm sort of using your own words against you here. Um, you mentioned, of course, the idea of Tvilas Kalim, which... Uh, uh, you're correct that the Avni Nezer does say this, but it's not the Avni Nezer who says it. It's the Shei Mishmul uh, quoting his father in his Drush Sefer. Now, uh, you... I agree with you, but oh, okay, what's I, I that... it, uh, my general rule about the Shei Mishmul, as opposed to other Masoras, the Shei Mishmul is an authorized... Yes. So it's right. He was, in a way, the 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 secretary who wrote much of Igletal and others. I'm just pointing out that this does not appear in the voluminous 
Shuvas Avnei Nezer anywhere. It doesn't appear in, right? And as you said before, when we talked about Mesoras Moshe, something that doesn't appear in an author like Rabbi Avram Bornstein, who was no, wasn't afraid to write, then I think perhaps it doesn't have that same weight. There are other reasons to be matir, uh, the Caleb. I, I won't disagree with you, but I'll say that this Avnei Nezer is taken seriously and examined by a broad variety of Achron. Yeah, well, yeah. Although, as you say, you know, the the the, the Svara is 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 like you say, you called it mythically and magically, which is a lot different than you know uh, than than the other Svaras uh, to be matir, uh, which have to do with um, you know with with the bias of you know. In other words, I agree, but I like my intellectual hypothetical, which is. Um, when a non-Jew loses a limb and then converts to Judaism and then dies, does Kavura apply to the limb? Yes. Yeah, so, there you're talking about, you know, the chius, the, the, the essential chius that was in that person. And that, that chius, what are you going to say? That that was a different... This really has to do with your other question, I think, about Kikot and Shanoi Ladami. He doesn't magically become a different being it's the same biological being that it was before. And therefore, uh, obviously, that biological being is, is Zoha to Kvuras Yisrael, despite the fact that that limb was cut off from before. Right, so uh, that limb becomes Jewish. That limb, the, the person has a schus Kvura. That- Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 